0: A generations of Jedi Knights the Guardians of peace of justice and Lord, of Heaven, or the Dark Welcome back to People's History of the Old Republic, episode 6.5 Alexa play Fortunate son Congrats on 40 episodes, Kelsey. Last time we took a whirlwind tour of Nar Shaddaa and crushed the exchange, destabilizing crime in the system. Now we catch up with Jedi Masters as Kyle, relive some past traumas, and find out how much awful yet true shit Kraya can get away with saying to Mandalore. Spoiler alert, it's a lot. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in legends. So, Knights of the Old Republic 2 Part 5.
1: Duk as Space Vietnam. Last time, in episode 6.4, we nearly managed to fit all of Nar Shadda into one show, but we just couldn't do it. We got all the way from the docking platform to overturning Goto's exchange, but Nar Shada is just too big. After Goto's yacht was destroyed, the Iban Hak touched down on the smuggler's moon again, and Surik was able to finish up many hanging side quests. She also obtained a new source of fuel for Citadel Station from Voga the Hut, and added two new companions, the droid Goto and the human bounty hunter, Mira. This brought the party up to seven members with four spots remaining, two of which will be filled today. All that's left on Arshadai is to talk with Jedi Master Zez Kael, and then board the Iban Hawk to trigger a duel with Visasmar. Hence, we're already on the moon, we'll start with the Jedi Master and go from there. Zez is cryptic, much like every other Jedi Master to ever live, but he does provide some useful tidbits on Surik's past and the true reason for her exile. He opens by musing that Surik returned from exile just like Kavar said she would. Kavar believed that Cirque was still connected to the worlds where she had fought during the Mandalorian Wars, either phys- mentally or physically via the Force. Master L also says that the Jedi did not scatter to the winds as was believed, but instead had a specific plan designed by Kavar to both hide and draw out the Sith menace. When the Jedi gathered, the Sith would strike, so they split up and went to worlds with strong or irregular force signatures that could mask their presence. Kavar believed that by splitting up, the Sith might believe themselves victorious and let their guard down, though it seems they all grossly underestimated their enemies. Indeed, it seems that this half-assed plan fell apart almost immediately. As Ez-Kael has not heard from any other Jedi in more than a year. It's so bad that when Circ mentions that Atris holed up in the Secret academy, Jedi Academy on Telos 4, Master L is shocked that she yet lived. It seems he believed the rumors Atris started about her dying on Qatar.
0: When Surek asked why Ez-Kael didn't go to Qatar, he said that he hadn't finished his investigation on Narshida, which sounds like a load of utter bullshit. It's implied elsewhere in the game that like most of those who survived, Master L didn't attend because he was scared by the power of the Sith. The Jedi began to notice a pattern in the disappearances. They either occurred in locations that seemed blind to the force or where Jedi gathered in any, in any number. So, so they did the only sensible thing they could. They allowed a conclave to be called on Qatar, which led to the deaths of more than 90% of the order and millions of Merilucah. At least for Master L, this seems to be the point when he realized that any gathering of Jedi, even marginally for sensitive members, would lead to any nearby pe- would lead any nearby people to become collateral damage. Why it took them so long to understand this is unknown, but as we've previously noted, these Jedi really sucked. Even after seeing the untold horror and devastation visited upon Qatar, the Jedi still thought that the hidden Sith enemy was, quote, weak weak enough that it was afraid to confront us openly, end quote. With the Jedi Council believing this, they agreed to Gavar's plan of hiding and hopefully lulling the Sith into a false sense of security. At this point, Circ changes the subject, asking for the real reason she was exiled. Zezkayao responded that the council was uncertain of the true reason even then because it wasn't simply that she followed Revan to war. Interestingly, Zezkay doesn't believe that Revan was actually redeemed and that his lightside actions were a result. Instead he believes that his lightside actions were a result were a result of the enclave council's programming. There we go. Sirk's trial had such a profound impact on Master L that it was the day he decided to leave the Order. He did not believe that the Jedi had truly contemplated the reasons for Sirk's exile, and that without such examination, the Order was lost. (laughs) Zezkiel now believes... The Council sent her into exile because they were afraid of what Sirk had become and when when she was blinded to the Force. Yet another indication that the Council didn't sever her connection. If the Exile has high enough awareness, she can cut through Master El's bullshit and get to the heart of things. He admits he fled to Narshada out of fear, but also to hide from the myriad failures of the Jedi Order. This is where any Jedi Master comes the
1: closest to truly getting it. Master L believed that the failure and seeming demise of the Jedi and the failure of the masters was a failure to properly train their students. Perhaps the Jedi teachings were flawed because so many masters who believed and practiced them wholeheartedly had failed their students. Quote, Master Arca failed Ulik, as Master Boss failed Exar Kun as Kay and Zar and the others of the Council failed Revan and Malak. End quote. This is one of the few instances of Tales of the Jedi content seeping into KOTOR or KOTOR 2. The old Jedi Master continues, quote, For all the acts we do to preserve the galaxy from such an arrogance that all we do is right and just, I wonder if there is a counter effect that is created that strikes back at us, end quote. Master L then says that there is some kind of wound in the Force, a growing echo of the pain caused by something. In the end, Zez Kyle says that the exile taught him something during her trial that stayed with him for eight years. And for that, he is grateful. Now he's going to backtrack on all of this on Tantooine, but it's nice to hear it in the moment. Finally, the exile asks why the council cut her off from the force, but Zez Kyle says that didn't happen. It's a rare punishment that has only been used once. And even then it was from a breakdown in discipline a clear allusion to the time that Nomi Sunrider cut Ulic Keldroma off from the Force in anger at the end of this Great Sith War. Master L doesn't understand why she was cut off from the Force, or so he says. In summation, Zez Kael says that the Jedi must accept responsibility for their own failings and recognize that they are a flawed Order. They never accepted blame for the fall of Ulic, Exar Kun, Revan, Malak, or Surik, Though, placing the Exile in that group is a stretch, to say the least. In fact, Surik was the only one who tried to return and explain things, but the Council only sought to punish her. Before the two part ways, as Kyle agrees to reconvene on Dantooine and teaches the Exile a force form known as Force Affinity, so long as she's a Consular. This allows the player to gather force points quickly while not fighting.
0: A Jedi, cons- a Jedi consular will learn three lightsaber forms and one additional force for- form at levels 11 through 14. At level 11, a consular learns Form 1, a.k.a. Shicho, which is the most basic for- lightsaber form taught to all Padawans at a young age. At level 12, the consular exile learns Force Channel, which provides a small boost to the player's connection to the Force. The, c- the consular exile learns Form 2, or Makashi, a lightsaber form that is excellent for dueling other Force users, but not much else, at level 13. and It is the style used by Count Dooku in the prequels, and is akin to, more akin to fencing. Finally, at level 14, the Consular Exile will learn Form 3, better known as Sorosu. Considered the truest expression of the non-violent Jedi, Form 3 built on Form 1 to create better a technique better prepared to deflect bas- blaster fire as it became prevalent. This is the stance perfected and used by Obi-Wan Kenobi in the prequels and the Clo- Clone Wars. If you recall Kenobi's opening stance where the main blade hand was back while the open hand was pointed forward to challenge the opponent, that's Sorosu. Or so they say. There are seven lightsaber forms in total and forms four through seven, Atreyu, Shien, a.k.a. Jim So, Nimon and Juyo can all be learned by other classes in KOTOR 2. Unlike lightsaber forms, which have been a constant in Star Wars for quite some time, Force forms only appear in KOTOR 2, and only Force channel is learned by all classes. The other three, Force Potency, Force Affinity, and Force Mastery, may only be learned by Consulars or those who choose Consular Prestige classes. We will discuss these in a little more depth later. After meeting with Master exhausted. Suric has exhausted all the opportunities on Nar Shaddaa and returns to the Ebon Hawk. As she does, she senses an additional presence on the ship and her companions are nowhere to be found, having been incapacitated. Suddenly, Darth Nihilus' apprentice, Visas Mar, appears and she's not looking to provide any answers. Instead, she reveals a red lightsaber and prepares to do battle. Our first lightsaber duel in the game. Except Zurich doesn't have a lightsaber, doesn't yet have a lightsaber, so she will just have to make do.
1: The duel on the Ebon Hawk, as it came to be known, was brief and decisive. Even though Zurich lacked a lightsaber of her own, she used a vibroblade to deflect Mar's attacks and severely injured the Miraluka. Mar continued the fight but was again rebuffed and her lightsaber destroyed. Vsauce begged for the sweet release of death in Sirach's hands instead of the unimaginable torture that Darth Nihilus would have visited upon her before the execution. It's reminiscent of the Grand Inquisitor's words when he chose to fall to his death rather than face punishment at the hands of Darth Vader in Season 1 of Rebels. Quote, There are some things far more frightening than death, end quote. Sirik refused to kill a wounded and defenseless opponent and instead redeemed the Miraluka who chose to abandon Nihilus before slipping into unconsciousness. Visas abandoned her master so quickly because the Exile's kindness and compassion unnerved her, as she had been bereft of both emotions since Katara one year earlier. Shuruk took Mar to the medbay and allowed her to rest and recuperate. Before it was cut, the duel with Visas Mar was much more extensive, with additional context showing the Sith incapacitating the crew and blinding Shuruk with foresight after losing enough health. After Visas awakens, Surak will begin retraining her as a Jedi Sentinel, and will be taught to use the foresight ability in turn. When Aten Rand noticed Visas lying unconscious, he said that many believed the Miraluka to be extinct after Qatar, though this turned out to be false. However, much more surprising was the fact that a Miraluka was working with the Sith, an unheard of occurrence. Miraluka Jedi were very common, and we've encountered a few thus far, including Shonab Kalu in Tales of the Jedi and Noab Hulas and Ka'anila in the KOTOR comics. Aten also says that Katara was halfway between Onderon and Dantooine with few knowing the true details or extent of the
0: attack. While Atten accepted Visasmar as a companion, Kreia C- views her as an affront. This dis- this displays more of Kreia's horrific politics as she's clearly discriminatory to non-humans and believes that the foresight ability that is inherent to all Mira is wasted on their species. Kraya considered Mira only fit to be servants and little else. This isn't the last time we will see Kraya's space racism on display. She calls Baldur a Zabrak, an animal, and instructs a male exile to avoid, quote, breeding, end quote, with Visus Mar because their offspring would be monsters. So that's... Just an awful thing to say. Once again, we see that Krei is a heinous person, no matter how interesting her Force theories are, or how powerful she is. And this brings us to a brief point that needs to be made, because we've probably glossed over it too often. Just because the Jedi suck, that doesn't mean the Sith are good, or even a preferable alternative. We've talked about how much the Jedi suck in so many episodes that we've lost count, and we won't apologize for that. They're the suckiest bunch of sucks who ever sucked, but... And this is the important part. This does not make the Sith good by comparison. Yes, characters like Kreia, Darth Revan, and Emperor Palpatine are incredibly interesting both for their views and their abilities within the Force, but that's it. As Palpatine notes in the Season 4 episode of The Clone Wars, Escape from Kadavo, all Sith governments are empires, and all those empires are built on slave slave labor as a matter of course. A bunch of intergalactic space wizards who are usually well-meaning but fuck up and protect a bad republic is still better than an empire built on slavery. This issue came up on Twitter, and it needed to be addressed here as well. We're not here to be Sith apologists. We can talk about the overarching morality tales without hedging in favor of the Sith, because they're obviously the bad guys here. That's how these things work. They're still interesting, though. Now that we've covered that, we can move on to, char- to the character profile we missed last time, and then it's off to Onderon.
1: Character Profile to or G0T0 Last episode, we sort of just tacked on the revelation that the exchange crime lord GoTo is actually an infrastructure planning droid with the designation G0T0, though it's very apparent in the game. In 3955 BBY, the droid was built and tasked with overseeing the Telos restoration project to droids were incredibly expensive due to their immense computing power, able to handle ever-changing data on planetary scales. They were capable of processing climate change data, shield levels, and zone integrity on a minute-by-minute basis. However, GoTo was programmed with a secret secondary mission to help rebuild the Republic after the Jedi Civil War. To those ends, GoTo was given only two directives, produce options to build the Republic and follow all the laws of the Republic. GoTo worked for some time trying to meet both directives, but found there was no feasible way to save the Republic without breaking its laws. Because conflicting directives caused droids to become erratic, Goto chose to break laws, deciding that saving the Republic was more important. However, in order to keep his identity and motives a secret, Goto assumed the guise of a gangster, developing both the image and dialogue for his crime boss hologram from watching old movies on the holonaut. This way, Goto could operate as the gangsters' liaison and everyone just thought he was an old hermit who was overly paranoid about security. As a crime lord, Goto's actions were illegal but also beneficial in rebuilding the republic. Gotu used the resources of the exchange to kill destabilizing individuals and organizations including the Huts. Goto distrusted the Huts and tried to neutralize them, especially Voga Onashida. Voga Onashida Gotu went further and put, bow- put out bounties for live Jedi or Sith as the droid needed someone to help it understand the Holy War between wo- two warring sects of the same religion. The droid believed ending the forever war between the Jedi and Sith was key to rebuilding. At some point between 3955 and 3951, Gotu became aware of and took control of the HK-50 droid manufacturing facility on Telos 4
0: we talk about some of the conversations with the companions, but that can wait until later as we put off Onderon for far too long. Unfortunately, the home of the Beast Riders will also have to wait, though that's not because of any digression on our part this time. Once the Ebon Hawk ep- exits hyperspace in the Onderon system, a cutscene begins and everything goes to hell. Above the planet, there's a traffic jam waiting to gain access to the Isa spaceport. You'd think spaceships wouldn't get caught in traffic jams as they can move in three dimensions, but when there's only one city on a world and one spaceport in the city, you get jammed up. Hundreds of ships are idling in orbit, including many Republic vessels attempting to provide aid to the beleaguered planet. Side effects of the brewing civil war on Onderon. Unbeknownst to most, the traffic jam was a blockade initiated by two of Onderon's military leaders, General Vaklu and Colonel Tobin. The duo blockaded their homeworld in an attempt to catch Mitra Surik after making a secret alliance with the Sith to gain their military support for a planned coup against the incumbent government of Queen Talia. Incidentally, this is a family affair because Vaklu and Talia are cousins who hate one another. We will discuss the Onderon Civil War in much greater detail later, but here's what you need to know right now. Vaklu, Vaklu leads a secessionist insurgent coup against Queen Talia and her royalist who wish to remain with the Republic. Vaklu is making secret deals with Darth Nihilus, who wants to use the secession of Onderon to further destabilize the Republic to make destroying all life in the galaxy easier. Vaklu and Talia hold roughly equal support among the populace of Onderon, and Suric will decide the outcome with her decisions whenever it is we actually arrive on Onderon. As the Ebenhawk enters the long line of ships, Atten, Surik, Kreia, and Mira receive a message in the cockpit from Colonel Tobin. The Colonel says
1: that the military has been warned to expect the Ebenhawk's arrival and that a peaceful solution was out of the question. Without hesitation, Colonel Tobin's forces begin firing on the companions, forcing Atten to take evasive maneuvers. Ships from the Onderon fleet attacked the Ebon Hawk under the pretense that the light freighter fired first, but that's false. The navy under Tobin also began to indiscriminately fire on every ship that was waiting to land on Onderon. The aggression ignited a massive space battle between the waiting Republic, Royalist, and civilian ships in orbit, allied against Onderon's navy loyal to Vaklu, bolstered by Sith forces. The blockade and subsequent space battle became known as the First Battle of of Onderon, Civil War. Tobin dispatched some fighters to attack the Iban Huck directly when it was not immediately shot down. The Exile gets on the Huck's turret and dispatches the six remaining starfighters in pursuit, giving us a good look at the carnage outside the ship. Opposing sides fire indiscriminately, and it's honestly impressive that the game's engine could handle so many ships battling on screen simultaneously. Maklu intended for the blockade and subsequent space battle with Republic forces to show the power of a secessionist, Onderon, but also as a means of declaring martial law on the planet. The Royalist forces battle, but a Sith fleet dropped out of hyperspace and destroyed most of the Republican Royalist ships. Luckily, the battle allows the damaged Ibn Haq to sneak down to Duxun, on first moon, and land in its overgrown jungles. It wasn't exactly a crash landing, but the ship sustained damage in the skirmish. Atten says the ship will need to be repaired before it can fly, though the thick jungles and mountainous terrain should provide some protection. Welcome back to the demon moon of Onderon, Mitra very own Space Vietnam. Welcome
0: back to Dachshund. Location profile, Dachshund. Way back in the dim old days of this show in episode 3.1, this is where the fun begins, we introduced you to the planet Onderon and its chaotic moon, Dachshund. It's somewhat fitting that we began our core run of stories we really wanted to tell on the show: Tales of the Jedi, Knights of the Old Republic, and Knights of the Old Republic um, 2. Taken, taken together along with the Kotor comics, these stories inform most of what we know about the in-universe historical period known as the Old Sith Wars. The Old Sith Wars begin in 4000 BBY with Ulit Keldroma and the Beast Riders of Onderon and end in 3950, just after the events of Kotor 2. Back when we introduced the old Sith Wars, we mistakenly said it only lasted until 3951, but that's incorrect. This 50-year period covers the Great Sith War, the Great Hunt, the Great Restoration, the Mandalorian Wars, the Jedi Civil War, and the Sith Civil War. To put that in a little perspective, Episode 3.1 was our fifth episode, and it was released in early March 2019. This episode is our 40th, and is coming out in early December 2019. Maybe it's fitting that we're going back to the worlds where the fun began so long ago. If you look on SoundCloud, it says we have 41 episodes. Ignore that. There's a duplicate show in there that we can't really get rid of for some reason. Though we've talked about it many, many times, we've never done a location profile on Duksoon, so let's rectify that grievous oversight. Duksoon, a.k.a. the Demon Moon, is covered in overgrown, harsh jungle terrain that overtakes everything. The extreme humidity and constant rain destroy all mechanical devices unless they are constantly maintained and repaired. The jungles are also home to many types of native fearsome be- beasts of all shapes and sizes and types. Bomas and Canox are reptilian land-based beasts, while flying creatures such, such as Drexels and Screeves could pick off their prey from the skies. Dixon's alpha predator, the Zakeg, Looks like a cross between a wolf and an ankylosaur. If you remember your dinosaurs. Finally, there's Ma- the Mauros that can cloak itself with the force and is the only one of these beasts, not native to Duxun. Since time immemorial, Duxun had an irregular orbit that causes it to briefly share an atmosphere with Onderon. This phenomenon makes trips between two planets possible without the need for space flight. And the first time, and first allowed the vicious beast of Duxun to migrate to Onderon. Around 3998 BBY, the sarcophagus of
1: Freedon Mad, a former Dark Lord of the Sith, was transferred to Duxun from Onderon. Jedi Master Arkajeth had Nod's remains stored inside a mausoleum made of Beskar, Mandalorian steel, and is impervious to most weapons, except lightsabers, Ark also planned to let the beasts of the Duxun jungles take care of any intruders, and that strategy worked. Worked for about a year until 3997 when a fallen Jedi named Exar Kun followed the trail of the Sith to Duxun, discovering Freedon Nad's mausoleum. In the development everyone saw coming, a Beskar and Jungle Beast aren't enough to stop a force a determined Force user with a lightsaber. In 3996, Mandalore the Indomitable attempted to make a last stand above Onderon with the remnant of his Mandalorian forces, but was pushed back, crash landing on Duxun. Mandalore the Indomitable fought valiantly, but the beasts of Duxun were too great and too many. The Mandalorians searched the jungles but could not find their leader. Eventually, a Tong warrior found the Mask of Mandalore, taking it in the title of Mandalore for himself. That very year, Mandalore the Ultimate, as the Tongue would become known, began to quietly rebuild the Mandalorians from a secret base on Duxun. For 35 years, the Mandalorians placed traps, anti air turrets, minefields, and a number of outposts across the moon. In 3963, the Mandalorian Neo Crusaders used the moon as a launching point for their invasion of Andron, which was subdued in mere hours. When Revan and the Jedi joined the Mandalorian Wars on the side of the Republic, they began to push their foes back until Duxun was the only Mando stronghold left outside the Outer Rim. Around 3961, Revan tasked Mitra Surik with uprooting the Mandalorians from Duxun, and uproot she did. But it wasn't a simple thing. The Battle of Duxun lasted for months, and ten Republic soldiers died for every Mandalorian killed. Around 3954, Candras Odo, a.k.a. Mandalore the Preserver, began rebuilding the Mandalorians in the abandoned outposts on Dxun.
0: Location profile, Onderon. While we're at it, let's get this one out of the way too. Situated just within the inner rim in the Japrail system, Onderon is a savage world with a rich history. The world was originally created by Tom Veitch for 1993's Tales of the Jedi, Ulik Keldroma, and the Beast Riders, Beast Wars of Onderon. Despite being a seeming backwater, Onderon became an important location in galactic history due to a seemingly random series of events, many of which occurred long before it ever joined the Republic. Sometime between 5200 and 4600 BBY, a colony ship from one of the core worlds brought humans to Onderon, but it wasn't the picturesque landing spot they hoped for. The savage beast of Dxun that permanently migrated to Onderon when the two celestial bodies briefly shared an atmosphere each year made life hell for the settlers. They immediately began building a walled city that would come to be known as Isis, the city's only planet or the planet's only city. There we go. Though they initially lived in peace or tried to, the new inhabitants of Onderon eventually fashioned weapons and traps to hunt the vicious beast. By 4,400, Isis had grown to thousands of square miles and millions of inhabitants, but the arrival of Freed the reigning the reigning Dark Lord of the Sith, changed all that. Nadd sought a world to conquer and call his own after training under the spirit of Naga Sadow on Yavin 4, destroying the spirit, and searching out numerous Sith artifacts. On Onderon, Nadd was worshipped by many of the inhabitants for his command over the force in the dark side, and they later became cultists known as Naddists. The Dark Lord also began the practice of banishing criminals and distance outside the walls of Isis, leaving them to the beasts. While Fried and Nad established a dark side theocratic monarchy in Isis, the exiled people of Onderon survived and eventually tamed some of the creatures. The exiles soon, began, soon gained the ability to uh, ride Bomas and Drexels, using them as beasts of burdens and as war mounts able to assault Isis by land and air. In 4350, the opening skirmishes of the Beast Wars occurred, and it became an ongoing series of battles that would last some 350 years.
1: In 4002 BBY, Onderon was discovered and voluntarily joined the Republic, though no outsiders knew of the dark side nature of its leaders. In the year 4003, Jedi were sent to Onderon to serve as watchmen for the system and as a final test before their promotions to Jedi Knight. Human brothers Ulic and Kay Kaldroma and the Twi'lek Tot Donita tried their damnedest, but the situation was far worse than the Tree of Jedi or their master, Arkajeth knew. The people of Onderon greatly distrusted outsiders and openly discriminated against non-humans, a tendency they showed when they attempted to arrest Donita upon arrival. Jedi attempted to assist the people of Aziz, but a daring raid by the Beast Riders led to the kidnapping of Princess Galia. However, when the Jedi led a counterattack against the Beast Riders, they found that Princess Galia willingly left to be with her secret lover, Oran Kira, the son of the leader of the Beast Riders, Modan Kira. They learned that the princess had escaped to marry her true love and was prepared to give up her title and birthright to do so. Jedi found that the monarchs of Andoran were actually under the thrall of the Dark Side and used it to extend their rule. Upon hearing this, Ulic, Kay, and Ta agreed to aid the Beast Riders, and they all staged a massive attack against Iziz and the Royalists. Insurgents were nearly defeated, but Master Arkajeth arrived in the nick of time and applied his battle meditation to the Beast Riders. It was enough to end the reign of Queen Amanoa, a dark Side adherent and Naddist. Galia was crowned queen, and she united the people of Aziz to the Beast Riders with her marriage to Kira, officially ending the Beast Wars. Two years later... In 3998, the Freedon-Nad uprising occurred when a large contingent of Nodists attacked the Jedi, who were attempting to move the sarcophagus of Nod to Duxun. In the First Battle of Onderon, the cultists were successful. In stealing the sarcophagus and the dark side, Paul fell over the world again after King Omen, the father of Galia, who was long thought dead, resurfaced. While confronting Omen, Archijeth was captured after the stunning return of Freedon-Nad's spirit.
0: Master. Master Arca was stripped naked, bound to a stake, and tortured with the Dark Side and Sith sorcery by King Amun and the Spirit of Nad. The Dark Side grieved in stronger on Onderon to the point that the Jedi could barely find the will to fight. However, Jedi Master Thon responded to Ulit Keldroma's pleas for help by rousing the Republic on Coruscant and the Jedi on Ossus. A small Jedi task force led by the Force prodigy Nomi Sunrider issued forth from Asis while a large contingent of Republic soldiers arrived to bolster the city of Isis. The Jedi reinforcements were able to re-energize the Jedi defending Onderon and the group of seven Jedi including the Keldroma brothers, Tot, and Nomi stormed King Amon's dark side torture chamber. In the end, Ulik slew King Amun, Arkajeth was freed, and the power of the light won out. Though Freedon Nad did pass, pass some of his Sith teachings on to a new generation in the form of Sital and Elime Kito. With the Nads defeated, the uprising ended, and the Jedi moved Nad's sarcophagus to Dexum without further incident. In 3996, the Mandalorians were defeated at Onderon and Duxoon by the Republic and Beast Riders. During the Great Hunt, the Jedi purged a, a number of imported Tarintiteks from Onderon, amongst many other worlds. In 3963, the Mandalorians invaded from Duxoon, conquering Onderon in mere hours and using the world as a staging ground to prosecute their war against the Republic. In 3961, Andoram was liberated by the Jedi Republic, though the Mandalorians sabotaged and badly damaged Isis on the way out. The counterattack against the Mandalorians was led by a cunning army general named Vaklu. This success led Vaklu to becoming a powerful figure on the planet who openly sought secession from the Republic. His views gained traction traction with many citizens in stark comparison with the planet's ruler, Queen Talia, and those royalists who wished to remain with the Republic. These opposing ideologies set the stage for the Andoran Civil War, which serves as the backdrop of Timitra Surik's arrival in the world in 3951. But we're still on deck
1: back on the ship
0: Krya provides us with a
1: number of details about duxun via exposition Atten didn't realize that this primitive overgrown jungle wasteland was duxun the infamous moon where the mandalorians began to rebuild their shattered tribe while small clearings in the odd outpost dot the moon servers, kryo says these aren't settlements of any kind instead they are decade old crash sites and impact craters left over from the battle of duxun The outposts are military installations built by the Mandalorians between 3996 and 3961. Aten is shocked because the moon doesn't look like much of a battlefield, but Crya notes that the encroaching vegetation and torrential downpours have buried much evidence of the conflict. Surak says that they need to get to Onderon to find Jedi Master K'var, but that's not happening until the ship is repaired or they find an alternate route. The Exile and Crya agree that they should search the surrounding area for clues because they can feel something in the Force. Crya, of course, already knows what that something is, but she's going to let the Exile figure find out for herself. Surik then leaves to gather her thoughts before disembarking the ship. Crya, meanwhile, is up to her old tricks and has a few words for Atten, telling the pilot that the ship's repairs shouldn't be finished until after the Exile's business on Duxun is concluded. When Atten asks why Surik never mentioned the horrific battle, cry replies simply, Do you speak of all your battles, or are there some you wish to forget? End quote. For all of Jedi Master Kavar's feelings, it seems that he was right about Surik's lingering connections to the locations of her past battles. The game never explicitly calls these connections PTSD, but they are framed that way and the symptoms are largely the same. Cirque experiences traumatic memories, lived in exile for eight years as a means of avoidance, and has negative emotional and physical reactions to the events. If the Vietnam allegory isn't clear enough yet, don't worry. It's just going to keep coming. We've got a war fought in the dense, humid jungle against a concealed, fortified enemy that knows the terrain. If this show had more money, we'd be playing Rooster by Alice in Chains or Fortunate Son by Creedence Clearwater Revival over this whole section.
0: The Vietnam allegory isn't perfect since the Mandalorians aren't the good guys and it's never been confirmed, but the connective tissue is most definitely there. We're even going to find journals of Surik's fallen comrades and relive some of the horrors of war. Surik depart, departs the Hawk with Mira and Vysis Mar. We'd love to take T3 and 4, but droids don't do well on soon. We'd also love to reassemble HK 47 and talk about everyone's favorite droid, but this episode already has even more digressions than normal, so we'll do it next time. Much of the time on Duxun is spent wandering through, narrow pa- wandering through narrow passages through the mountains or dense jungles, killing a bunch of beasts, and learning about the Battle of Duxun in 3961. The Exile also assists the Mandalorians doing normal fetch quests and chores for the group until until they trust her enough to reveal more. In KOTOR 2, the Mandalorians are helpful to the Republic for one of the few times in history. That's because they have a new leader, a Mandalore who was close to Revan and who looks like character actor Ron Perlman, though he wasn't voiced by him. In the least shocking reveal of the entire game, the guy who sounds like, acts like, and was the same voice as Canderous Ordo is in fact Candras Ordo. Though his real name is only said once in the final game and once more in cut content. Uh, at least that's all we can find. But the Exile doesn't know that because yet, yeah, because we haven't run into any Mandalorians quite yet. She will guess the truth later in the game, but that's for another time right now. It's running through jungle pathways and killing so many Malrus and Canucks in between at and interrupting to give updates on this painfully slow repairs and ship sightings. The fight in space is causing some ships to crash on Ducksoon, while hunters block progress. So they're while bounty hunters block progress. So, but they're neither interesting nor narratively useful. So we will slay them and continue. They gave us no choice. Oddly enough, Miro will wonder aloud about how much the creature's hide hides and parts can be sold for at a market because they keep piling up, which is a really weird thing to muse about. Character Ketchup Candorous Ordo
1: Mandalore the Preserver After helping Revan and the Companion save the galaxy, Candorous Ordo tried to lead a semi normal life, but it was not to be. Revan's old memories began to resurface, and he remembered the threat in the Unknown Regions. Upon doing so, Revan contacted Candorus to see if the Mandalorians could be restored in order to aid the Republic against the Gathering Darkness. Ordo was skeptical, as the Mask of Mandalore had been lost at Malachor V, though some clans were seeking it at the time. In order to unite the clans and provide some protection to the Republic, Ordo would need the Mask to convey authority and legitimacy. Candorus arranged for he and Revan to join up with Clan Ordo on Rekiad as they searched for the mask. In 3954, Candorus, Revan, and T3M4 made the trip to the unknown regions to search the ice world Rekiad. The search eventually led to the twin ice spires, and in the process, Candorus was reunited with his wife Vila, though the reunion was short lived. Vila didn't trust Revan, who was going under the pseudonym. Avner. In the end, Candras shot his wife through the chest to save Revan after he touched the Mask of Mandalore and received a flood of old memories that greatly disoriented him. Afterwards, Revan knew that he needed to go deeper into the unknown to a, wild, to a world called Anathema, but Kandris was not invited. Revan asked his friend to take up the Mask of Mandalore, rebuild his people, and help protect the Republic. Candorus agreed, donning the mask and uniting the clans who were searching Reciad for the mask before leading them back into known space. While reuniting the clans, Ordo met a dying Tong who claimed the title of Mandalore sometime after Malachor IV. The Tong said that Mandalore the Ultimate had usurped the title with Sith help in 3996, and then gave Candorus his armor before dying. Ordo absorbed the Tong's clan into his own, integrated the Mask of Mandalore into the Tong's armor, and set up a secret HQ on Duk'sun. After taking up the identity of Mandalore the Preserver, Kandris was said to never remove his mask, even for sleep. According to a forum post by Chris Avalon, Candras was 63 years old in 3951, meaning he was born in
0: 4014 BBY. As the companions move through the jungles, they stumble upon an old KT-400 military droid carrier. This is the type of ship that Surik commanded during the Battle of Tuxun in 3961, when she ordered battle droids into the fray by the hundreds to attack anti-aircraft turrets. The droids were successful, but the cost was heavy both to the droids and to the Republic troops who accompanied them. It seems likely that every droid that participated was destroyed either by the enemy or the moon itself. This is where Surik finds the first journal written by one of those troops who charged in or flew in with droids. The casualties were high. Later in the game, will rel- or Surik will relive her time on Daksun during a forced vision showing the decisions she made that led to the deaths of so many soldiers under her command. It will also show the heroic charge she led to take the final outpost, running hundreds of yards across open terrain, littered with mines. Whatever Surik's faults and sins might have been as a general, and they were many, she wasn't a coward and she didn't send her soldiers into battle she wouldn't fight herself. After killing more bounty hunters from one of the downed ships Atten warned us about, Surik finds the second journal from a dead Republic pilot. This one has been this one has been scattered to the wrong drop zone, lost their ship, and was eventually pinned down by the Mandalorian turrets. The pilot was one of those who fought in the initial large-scale attack Supreme Commander Rubin ordered, which largely failed to make a dent in the Mandalorians because they were entrenched far too deeply. Again, Vietnam. This caused Revan to alter his strategy. Instead of the open attacks, Revan created a complex strategy to be implemented by Surik, who was leading a joint force of Republic soldiers, battle droids, and Jedi. Surik, the consummate general, followed Revan's orders to the letter, commencing a months-long series of feints and very minor skirmishes intended to probe Mandalorian defenses for weaknesses. Eventually, Revan's Fabian strategy worked, but it wasn't enough to save this pilot pinned down under Mandalorian fi- fire from Revan's first failed assault. The dead pilot's note ends quote, Where are those damn Jedi? End quote.
1: In a cutscene, we get our first glimpse of Colonel Tobin. He's berating a subordinate for letting Cirque escape, but doesn't have time for punishment because his detachment must be sent to Duxun to search. We will meet the subordinate again later. Meanwhile, it's about to the South Pacific moon. The central jungle of duk is confusing with paths zigzagging all over, but it does have a few treasures hidden about. There are a few Mandalorian caches, caches hidden about. They can only be opened with thorium charges found on Corban, so we'll have to come back later. They will have some pretty good loot, though, so there's no reason not to revisit them, but it won't happen this time. The Exile encounters the first hint of Mandalorians on Duxun when they found the body of a man wearing Neo-Crusader armor. Cirque questions if the Mandalorians could be returning to Duxun, and Mira chimes in that it's likely. No sooner does that happen than a squad of Mandalorians materializes out of the trees, overwhelming the companions. Oh, Cirque and her friends can fight back, but more Mandalorians show up and it's a battle the game won't let you win. So they're taking you to see Mandalore the Preserver. Looks like we're getting the band back together. The companions are led back to the Mandalorian outpost that served as Mandalore the Ultimate's HQ for more than 30 years in the location where Mitra Surak made her heroic charge across an open minefield. It's actually really spacious. There's the Mandalorian battle circle where we can win renown and glory through gladiatorial combat. That one guy who needs three... Phase pieces found to bring his power converters back online and the surly merchant who'd rather be out fighting. In the back is the hangar where a basilisk war mount where basil a few basilisk war mounts wait for use later in the game. We see all this in a the flyby then we center in on Mandalore the Preserver. If you thought the Mandalorians were completely destroyed because of everything that happened in Kotor 1, then Mandalore will disabuse you of that notion right here. However, we should be clear that while this little band is helpful, Revan destroyed them as a civilization for 4,700 years.
0: We won't be the first nor the last to say it, but KOTOR 2 is much less about the titular Sith Lords than it is about the Mandalorian Wars and all the fallout that flowed therefrom. Yes, the Sith Lords are powerful and interesting and cool, but this is a story about the beings who survived sixteen years of the Mandalorian Wars, and how and how they de- how that damage just cascaded and multiplied. The Mandalorian Wars led by led by oh my god, the Mandalorian Wars led Revan and Malak to the dark side, which in turn led Revan to nuke half his fleet along with ninety nine percent of the Mandalorians in the galaxy above Malakor Five. The victory led Revan and Malak to the Unknown Regions, and they returned as Dark Lords of the Sith. Thus, the Mandalorian Wars begat the Jedi Civil War. The fallout from the Jedi Civil War, which seemed to herald a new dawn for the Republic, had actually undermined its infrastructure so fully that it would come within one month of failing. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the Jedi Civil War destroyed the Jedi Order, leaving it with about 100 members in 3956. The titular Sith Lords then appeared during the Sith Civil War and later began the first Jedi Purge, whittling the formerly venerable Order down to eight members in the known galaxy by 3951. In this way, the Jedi Civil War begat the Sith Civil War, but in other ways, the Jedi Civil War never really ended. The Battle of Rakata Prime was just a respite from the horror of galaxy-spanning wars. Either way, it's all still fall out from the Mandalorian wars and we relive it through the eyes of the exile, just like any good reckoning of the Vietnam war. Uh, the game also serves as a damning indictment of American imperialism and the horrors of war war, both the macro story of KOTOR two and the micro story taking place on Duk Soon do the same within the star Wars context. Of course, this is also a story within a video game, so there has to be an in-game mechanic to facilitate all this exposition. That means performing deeds for the Mandalorians around the outpost until you've gained enough honor with Mandalore that he will offer to ferry the exile to Onderon and offer to accompany them on the daring adventure to save the Republic. The very same Republic the Mandalorians nearly burned to the ground. It's time for them to atone for their sins in any way they can. Before we get back to the part of the show where we run through
1: all these side quests, there's a little trick to be pulled on Mandalore. If the Exile attempts to open the locked room in the Outpost Command Center, Mandalore will know and stop her from doing so. However, if a stealth generator is placed on the character with any stealth, like Mira, and the character goes into solo mode, they can sneak into the locked room and grab a treasure trove of random gear at the player's level. The Mandalorian Battle Circle affords the the chance to win the most honor overall. Though for Jedi Counselors like our Exile, these battles can get tough without better armor. The first three fights against Darval, Kex, and Tagrin can be undertaken before venturing back out into the untamed wilderness. Darval and Tagrin are both fist fights with no force powers or weapons allowed. Tagrin is where the problem crops up for Consular since he's a damaged sponge. The Exile can choose how to fight Kex and will choose a no-holds-barred fight to use those sweet, sweet Force powers. After the third fight, the Mandalorian Surgeon in charge of the battle says that the Exile will need a sponsor to progress to the fourth and fifth fights. Surik will continue the beatings after helping her would-be sponsor, Kelborn, with a task. This next place, The next place to earn honor is with Zuka, a technician who is unsurprisingly having some trouble keeping the technology functional due to the harsh environment that is duck soon. Vines and weeds overtake power conduits, the humidity and rain rust electronics, and the beasts eat anything they can, including mechanical parts. Finding the pieces for Zuka's phase pulse converter is the only task that Zurich has to leave the compound to complete. She can repair some nearby frayed wiring, and she can ask about Dura-T3 to repair the Mando telemetry computer. Helping Zuka with all three tasks was a massive boost of honor. A Mando named Zarga asks the exile to find a scout named Kumas, and lastly, the Mandalorian Guard Captain at the gate tells Syrx you can prove her battle prowess by taking down the legendary Zakheg in the main jungle.
0: We're going to complete the side quest in the main jungle, do a couple of other things, then head to Onderon with Mandalore to finish the episode. We can't help that Dxun is more interesting to talk about than Mandalore. First up in the main jungle outside the compound, there's a small Mandalorian scouting party waiting for the exile. Darvell, the first opponent in the battle in the battle circle, will want to regain his honor by having a fight to the death out there out here, but there's an alternative. Surig offers to let Darvell join the Zakeg hunt, and once it's defeated, his honor will be restored. The Zekeg lives in a misty clearing in the jungle. It's a quadruped with a heavily heavily armored back and a tail covered in dark red scales. We're playing it up because the the zakeg is described as the alpha predator of Dexune, but the fight is really simple and takes very little time or effort. The companions are aided by Darvel, who regains his honor. A fact Serick will report to the guard captain when she returns with the zakeg's ear. The jungle also holds a few surprises. At one point, Surik sees a boma in her path, and Kraya uses the Force bond to uses the Force bond the two share to teach her a new skill. Kraya reminds the exile that the Force moves in and through all living things, and that it can be used to tame or distract beasts as well. Kraya tells Surik to reach out in the Force, feel the boma's thoughts, and turn it from their path. Surrick, because of her natural affinity to form Force Bonds, catches on within moments and learns to control Animal Bond, a somewhat rare Force ability that works like Mind Trick, but on beasts. Whether intended or not, this is a direct reference to Tot Donita's use of Animal Bond to tame three Bomas to serve as war mounts in the second issue of Tales of the Jedi. That was the first use of the ability in Star Wars. At least the first name used, anyway. Uh, the spirit uh, the spirit of Tot Donita lives on, even if he cruelly does not. Nearby, Sirik kills a Kanak that had eaten the final piece of tech. She needs to build a new lightsaber. Finally, we'll get a lightsaber back in the Mandalorian camp. The companions also assist Kelborn in defeating some nearby scouting parties and rescue Kamas from a ledge by taking out some Bomas that had him cornered.
1: We're into the sixth episode on KOTOR 2 and just now getting a lightsaber. Unfortunately, that how, that's how it works. We have to spend the minimum 10 hours on Telos 4 and Nar Shaddaa. Back in episode 28, I hate you old man, we talked about how Bioware had to struggle to get more than three lightsaber colors into the game. It was one of the few things they had to haggle with LucasArts about, but they eventually prevailed and were able to include purple and yellow crystals in addition to green, blue, and red. KOTOR 2 blows that out of the water with 10 total colors. In addition to the five in KOTOR 1, the sequel also includes cyan, silver, orange, bronze, and viridian. In case you aren't familiar with the chromatic scale, cyan is almost like turquoise, while viridian is a deep forest green. After adding Baudur to the party, Surik goes to the workbench in the Manda outpost and builds a new lightsaber. This is a chance to gain some influence with Baudur, who, as we've noted, probably is probably the best military engineer at the, in the galaxy at this time. Finally, after so long, Surik has a purple lightsaber. From now on, lightsabers and their constituent parts will begin dropping from enemies, and pretty soon the whole gang will have laser swords. With that done, it's time to finish these Mandalorian side quests. At the battle circle, Surik defeats Kelborn in the fourth fight, this time using only longswords. It's a straight-up sword duel, which is annoying, but still better than the fist fight. Lastly, Mitra Surik faces down Brawlor in the fifth fight. He's the toughest and most noble warrior the exile faces, but he also allows her to use any weapons or powers, and that's really a mistake. Brawler fought no- nobly, and Brawlor was defeated nobly. Instead of being an in indignant shit about it, Brawlar tells Surak that he considers being defeated by such a worthy opponent to be an honor. He remembered her heroics during the Mandalorian Wars and respected her, much like the admiration Candarus has for Revan. Surak then speaks with Zarga and Kamas, keeping Kamas a secret after being cornered by the beasts and not dying with honor. There's no sense in rat- Rather than come out to Zarga, if you want him dead, just go to the dark side and blow him up on the cliff
0: in the jungles. It's easier, and it's funny because of the Wilhelm scream. We'll close the episode out without really getting to Onderon, but for a very good reason. Kray is about to reveal her utter disdain for the Mandalorians, and Cal, the Mandalore himself. Also, we had a lot to catch up on from Narshadah. Once Curic returns to Candorus after doing good deeds, they will rendezvous at the ship in at the shuttle in the hangars. The two will have a brief chat, and Mandalore will agree to accompany Curic to Onderon and the rest of the journey, becoming the ninth companion. Curic then boards the shuttle and a cutscene begins. Kreia shows up in person to have some words with Candorus Ordo. We learn that Kraya manipulated Mandalore into into assisting the Exile in the first place, using information about Revan's fate as the carrot to her manipulative stick. Kraya has only shown up in the hangar to ensure that Ordo understands just how important Mitra is to the future. When he makes an idle boast about Mandalorian prowess being enough to protect the last Jedi, Kreia unleashes her vitriol upon Mandalore the Preserver and his pitiful clan. Mandalore has underestimated Kraya, and that was a bitter mistake. She's not just some elderly ex-Jedi Jedi who happens to know about Revan. She taught Revan, and her power to invade minds with the Force is basically unparalleled in all of Star Wars history. Kraya mocks the supposed Mandalorian crusade against the Outer Rim and the Republic. Kandris has bravado, and he's an amazing warrior, but his boasts ring hollow to a woman who has seen and caused more death and destruction than Ordo could ever dream of. Remember, she was Revan's first and last master, the teacher he returned to around 3965 to learn how to leave the Jedi Order as she had once done. Revan didn't, follow, Revan didn't use Kray's advice at the time, but he would do so about six years later after annihilating Malachor V and fleeing with more than 95% of the Republic fleet. Kreia was, in many ways, the inspiration for Revan's downfall, and is thus culpable at some level for his crimes. A decade later, she bred another superweapon. This time, it was living and named Darth Nihilus. Sometime between 3955 and 3953, she was Nihilus' Sith Master, and she taught him to feed on the four synergies of a world to sate his hunger. Katar is on her hands. Canderous.
1: Never one to shy away from a fight, goats Krya, claiming that he can rebuild the Mandalorian into something great. But hope for the future pales in comparison to a woman who can see the future as well as any Force user in history, including Yoda and Palpatine. At the end of the game, Krya will make predictions about the futures of the companions and about the events that we know to occur in the original trilogy and the first the the two yeah the first two prequel trilogy films. It may be cheating to predict events that happen in 20-year-old movies, but if you know, you know. When Canderous Ordo mentions the future, Crya puts her gift of foresight to work. Of course, she notes the future is always in motion and never certain, but that seems more than an intended dig at Mandalore because she knows she's right. Crya proposes that the the Battle of Malachor V was not some minor stumbling block that would set Mandalorians back a few years. No, Revan made it their tomb, a monument to all their sins, and Surik was the one who gave the eulogy in this now decidedly mixed metaphor that we're reaching for. Remember, though, when we say say Revan ended the Mandalorians as a civilization for 4,700 years, their brief resurgence in 738 ABY only led to the Mandalorian Excision when a joint Jedi and Republic task force scoured multiple worlds in in Mandalorian space. This snuffed out any hope of Mandalorian civilization permanently and they were permanently weakened and only a galactic afterthought following the Excision. This was the event that was retconned into the Legends continuity during a second season episode of The Clone Wars. This change in continuity is eventually what led to Karin Travis's departure from writing for Star Wars. The Excision, whatever name it takes on, is part of the new canon by virtue of its appearance in the Clone Wars animated series, though Dave Filoni has mentioned the event as occurring at some point in canon, probably combining many aspects
0: of The Excision and Malachor V, since Malachor has changed in canon, too. Kreia continues her diatribe, quote, Perhaps your people fought their last battle at Malachor V. And you have been dying ever since, a quiet death that will last centuries. End quote. In summing up Candorous Ordo, Kreia makes another prediction about Ordo and Jango and Boba Fett. Kreia sums up each, quote, and perhaps all that remains is what I see before me a man wounded by a Jedi encased in a Mandalorian shell, haunted by the thought of being the last of the Mandalorians. End quote. The Jedi that wounded Ordo was Revan in more ways than one. Kreia turns the knife one more time before letting Mandalore travel with the Exile. She has some information about the fate of Revan and Candorus wants that information more than almost anything. Mm -hmm. Kreia dangles it just out of reach, making him swear to protect the Exile as one of his own. The aged ex-Jedi mocks the aged Mandalorian. He believes that Revan abandoned him. He wants to be on that adventure deeper into the unknown regions, not babysitting this tired remnant of a once glorious empire. Eight years before Drew Carpishian created the backstory behind Revan's abandonment of Ordo on Requiad, Kraya seemed to be hinting at something much darker. Quote, Do you wonder where he wonders now? Mandalore, sorry, do you wonder where he wonders now, Mandalore? Why he gave you your orders and then abandoned you at the edge of the galaxy? End quote. Ordo was shocked. He's never spoken of that to anyone, so how could this so-called Jedi witch know it? But Kreia has, perhaps unintentionally, show Mandalore part of her hand. She doesn't care what happens to her personally. She's prepared to die on this journey. Indeed, she intends to, but not until the exile can be taught what she needs to what she needs to destroy the force and Kreia needs mandalore to help protect her prized pupil, her most prized people prized even above Reven getting in one final dig just because she can Kreia implores mandalore to be as loyal to Mitrasuric as he was to reven so that quote when there are no more when there are no more mandalorians at least their honor will remain in quote As Kreia walks away, she seems to smirk, and Mandalore orders a lieutenant, quote, forget about the Jedi, watch her, end quote. That's probably about as apt an assessment of KOTOR 2 as anyone could ever give.
1: Thank you (laughs) for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next episode... We'll finally land on Onderon and be there just long enough to briefly speak with Jedi Master Kavar and further entangle ourselves in the Onderon Civil War before moving on to Dantooine. There's nothing that Jedi do better than entangle themselves in civil wars. Anyway. (laughs) Please rate, comment, and subscribe to Fotor on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at FotorPod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. You can send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. Um, I'm Atherton KD on Twitter.
0: And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again and may the force be with you.